Acts chapter 4, we're going to start this morning in verse 23. If you're not very familiar with your Bibles, Acts is in the New Testament. When you come to the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are called the Gospels, and then you have the book of Acts, which is really the, the book of, if you will, of the history of the early church. Um, the big numbers represent chapters, the small numbers, verses. So Acts chapter 4 and verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word together, this word that you have superintended by your Holy Spirit at the hand of Luke for the benefit of your church, we pray that your Spirit would illumine our minds, that he would turn on the lights in our dark minds, give us understanding of your word, that he would transform our hearts more and more into the image of your Son, we pray that as we meditate on your word this morning together, as we hear it preached, that your spirit would fill us as your church and that we would go from here speaking the word with boldness. Pray that you would do this work in us for your namesake so that Jesus might be proclaimed in all the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we come to a passage today in Acts as our, in our studies that's likely to, to really challenge us fairly greatly in our own prayer lives. We, we really come to look at the prayer of the church in the face of persecution. If you, if you will, we've seen the body of believers in Acts devoted to prayer before this point. They've already been devoted to prayer. We see it in Acts chapter 1. Keep your hand in Acts 4 and look at Acts chapter 1. We will see their devotion to prayer even there. Look at verse 14. Pay attention to the, some of the wording here as well because it comes up again. All these with one accord. 
were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Here they are, devoting themselves to prayer with one accord. In a kind of unity in the body, they're devoted to prayer. Now we'll see it again. We see the content of their prayer in verse 24 and 25 of chapter 1. Um, as we hear that, look down there at verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas has turned aside to go to his own place. So we hear right at the beginning of Acts chapter 1 that the apostles are devoted to prayer, that the early church is devoted to prayer, that they're doing so all in one accord. But the first time we get any content to their prayer, the content of their prayer is they're praying for God to replace the 12th apostle. If you remember, Judas Iscariot has betrayed Christ and has at this point died, and so they want to via suicide, so they want to replace him as a 12th apostle. And so that's the content of their prayer. But it's not the only place we see them devoted to prayer. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, right after Pentecost and the proclamation of the gospel by Peter. Many people are saved, and we read about the church, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. What in the book of Acts becomes called the word of God or the word of Christ. Because as the apostles exposit the Old Testament and point to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus from the Old Testament, this becomes called the apostles' doctrine. How the whole of the Old Testament is fulfilled in points forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. They're devoted to the apostles' doctrine and to the fellowship. That's a noun. In other words... That isn't the fellowship like a verb, like we fellowship together. That's a noun, the fellowship, i.e., the local body of believers. They are devoted to the apostles' doctrine. That's the word of God as fulfilled in Christ. In our context, that would be the Old and New Testament. They're devoted to the fellowship. That's the body of Christ, the local visible body of Christ. They're devoted to it. And it says they're devoted to the breaking of bread, that seems to be an indication pointing toward what we would call the Lord's Supper and the prayers. Also, not just praying, but the prayers. If you remember, they're going to the temple daily. In fact, at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., they would go to the temple for corporate prayer. In other words, they came together at least a couple times a day for corporate prayer. Now, we have a corporate prayer meeting that happens once a month, 4 p.m., last Sunday of the month. They had a corporate prayer twice a day. Twice a day, they were devoted to it. We see their devotion come up actually to prayer in chapter 3 and verse 1. Look there. Now Peter and John, two of the apostles, were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, 3 p.m. That's the hour of the evening sacrifice. They were just devoted to the prayers. So we hear this of them and we begin to see it fulfilled in Acts. Now they're devoted to prayer and here... In Acts 4, we continue to see their devotion to prayer. And we see the content of their prayer here actually in a longer form than we've seen the content of their prayer to date. And the content of their prayer is in the context of opposition or persecution. So understand, this is the church praying in the context of opposition or persecution. 
And as we see them pray in the midst of opposition, we understand or we need to remember why the opposition happened. If you remember, the opposition comes because Peter and John walk into the temple at the evening or the hour of the evening sacrifice at 3 p.m. to pray. And as they go there to pray, not to offer the sacrifice, just to pray, as they go there to pray, they come across this crippled man who's been crippled, we learn from verse 22 of of chapter 4, his whole life, which is in excess of 40 years. And he's at the beautiful gate, one of the gates entering the temple, where people trafficked twice a day for prayer. And he's there at 3 p.m. collecting alms. And why is he collecting alms? Because he has no other way to provide for himself. So his friends, if you will, drop him off there to collect alms. He's been crippled his whole life, unable to walk. He's probably been at that gate every day for over 30 years. They walk in and see this man. They likely recognize him, but in this scene, they decide to heal him. And then they preach a sermon because as he gets up and is healed, he starts running about and leaping for joy. And all the crowds see this whole scene and they start gathering. And they gather together in Solomon's colonnade and they're saying, what's the meaning of this? And the apostles begin to preach. Peter and John both preach for a period of probably three to four hours, but we get a condensation of that preaching. Um, We know it's three to four hours because they start at 3 p.m. They're thrown in jail once it's evening or dark until the next morning. They begin to preach. And Peter says, Jesus is the one who healed him. This is the stunner. Let me tell you about Jesus. And he lays out how Jesus fulfills the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, that the seed of the woman would come. That, that's fulfilled in Genesis 12, 3, or a promise in Genesis 12, 3 is it narrows down to Abraham that what? Through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. So see the woman coming through the seed of Abraham, and they say he's, he's fulfilling that. He's fulfilling what Moses says in the rest of the Pentateuch. He's fulfilling this greater prophet that would come. He's fulfilling what the other prophets say about this Messiah who would come. And he begins to just preach about this Jesus who's come, he's lived, he's died, he's resurrected from the dead, and he is the one who's now healing this man by the Spirit through us apostles. You should trust in him. Repent and be forgiven for your sins. Turn to Christ in faith. And as that happens, the temple leaders become angry. And they arrest them, throw them in jail, and try them the next morning. And when they try them the next morning, they ask them about this, and they begin to speak about Jesus again. And the temple leadership, the Sanhedrin, says to them, you're never to speak in this name of Jesus again. And then we pick up this prayer in response to that opposition. This prayer picks up after their arrest, after they're commanded to be silent. And there are really four aspects of this prayer I want to look at in the face of opposition or persecution. So I want to look at four aspects. And, and, I, and I want to pray, not just to look at this together, but I'm hoping, Sovereign Grace, I'm hoping that the Lord makes us into a church that prays this way. Not just that we see and go, isn't that fascinating how they prayed, but that, that the Lord would make us into a church that prays similarly. So let's look at these four aspects. Here's the first one. First aspect of their prayer is that they, their prayer is, comes in the context of unity in the Lord. They had a unity in Christ. A unity in Christ. Look at verse 23. When they 
were released. In other words, that's Peter and John are released by the Sanhedrin after they've been told not to talk about Jesus anymore. When they were released, they went to their what? Friends. It's an interesting word. Another way to translate that word, and in some ways maybe a, maybe a more helpful way for our purposes, is they went to their own. They went to their own people. They went to their own, to their friends, and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, that's their own, their friends, their people, the church, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, and then we get this prayer. Notice, though, it says they lifted their voices together. I don't care for that translation because it's actually in the singular. They lifted their voice together. They lifted their voice together. While they, and the word together, or with one accord. Remember I told you in chapter one, pay attention to that verse 14. It says they prayed in one accord. Here again, they're lifting their voice together, or in one accord, same Greek word. Stress the idea that most likely somebody in the group lifts their voice and the rest are in agreement. This isn't like some kind of pandemonium where everybody just starts screaming in the room together. This is unified prayer. The body together in one voice, someone praying, and them essentially saying, amen, so be it, truly. We're with you in this prayer. We agree with this prayer. They're together, they're in one accord. The church is unified, and their unity is found in the Lord. Um, one of the reasons I brought Ian Hamilton, or bringing Ian Hamilton out in a couple of weeks is because he's one of my favorite preachers to listen to. And I listened to his sermon on this passage, actually, wanting to see what he did with it, and it was quite good. Uh, but at the beginning of it, as he talks about, he stresses this idea they came to their own, to their friends, their own. He relayed the story, a story from the life of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Many of you probably have never heard of David Martin Lloyd-Jones, but um, he is a famous 20th century British pastor. He died in the early 80s. He was the physician for the queen. He had become, worked to that point, becoming the physician for the queen. He was offered that position, and he walked away to be the pastor of a small mission church in Wales. Think about that. Which grew quite considerably, and then he ended up moving to London and pastoring there at Westminster Chapel. When he was a new believer, Lloyd-Jones it said when he was a new believer, came walking out of a play with some friends and he saw the Salvation Army band across the street playing their music. You know, you know what this is like back at this period. We're talking about prior to World War II and it wasn't really the thing for Christians to go to the theater. You guys understand that? So he walks out with his friends and sees the Salvation Army band out there playing and... Um, and, and to some degree, saying to people, the theater's not the place you ought to be by their presence there. And I'm guessing in the context of his friends probably thinking, look at the Salvation Army, those nuts over there, said that Lloyd-Jones looked at them and just said, those are my people. Saw the band and said, those, those are my people. He knew the Salvation Army was a, was a mess theologically, in fact, he talks about how they're a mess theologically. 
but he also knew that many of them were born-again believers in Christ. And so Lloyd-Jones says, those, those are my people. If we're in Christ through faith, now I want you to hear this, if we're in Christ through faith, then I'm yours and you're mine. They went to their own. See how friendship is defined here? We translate it friend, but, but I'm yours and you're mine because we're united to Christ and therefore we're united to one another. You're my people. They're not just your people. I want you to hear this. They're not just your people, the people across the aisle from you. They're not just your people if you feel some good sentiment toward them. They're not just your people if they manage to not offend you this week. You guys hear that? Does that not impact how you see other believers and how you speak about them and how you desire to gather with them in worship and prayer? They're your people. They are objectively your people if they are in Christ. And that reality, that they're objectively your people if they're in Christ, is infinitely, infinitely more important than your shifting sentiments about any of them. Now, I did email Ian and ask him about this matter from a practical perspective. Here, here's a portion of what I wrote to him. I, I want you to hear this exchange. I said to him this, how does one find this kind of unity practically? I interact daily with loads of, quote, evangelicals. Pretty much my whole city claims to believe in Jesus. How do I determine who actually is a friend of Jesus and thus a friend of mine? We are striving to learn how to practice good biblical Catholicity here, in other words, unity. We don't want to be schismatics. However, we also recognize that so many around us speak of a Jesus we hardly recognize. What are good parameters for declaring this person a friend of Jesus? I have some. I wanted to hear his, and I thought his answer was challenging and helpful. Let me start with the challenging part. Here's what he said. You ask the right and most difficult question. I've wrestled with this all my ministry. It's with a Scottish accent as I read it in the email, but I can't reproduce one. <laughs> Sounds so much better. Listen to what he says, though. I have a fear. I want you to hear his fear, because it ought to inform us and challenge us. I have a fear of speaking ill of anyone elected by the Father, washed in the Savior's blood, and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Do you have a fear of that? Do you have a fear of speaking ill of anyone elected by the Father, washed in the Savior's blood, and indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Because if that's true of them, who are you to speak ill of them? Who are you? It's pretty arrogant to gossip about that person or slander them, isn't it? in some sense, because the Father feels this way about them, has made this declaration about them, it's nearly infinitely arrogant. You're a finite being, so it can't quite be for you, but you get the point. Does that realization slow your tongue when you speak about other believers? Does it slow your heart when you're ready to jump to conclusions about them rather than giving them the benefit of the doubt? 
Does it slow your fingers when you're about to post something on social media? Let, let me, I, I went on and I said, I want, I want to get to the heart of my questions, though. I was asking Ian this important question you're all wondering, who's a believer then? Right? Because I'd like to talk bad about some, but no. <laughs> no, honestly, we shouldn't speak that way about anybody creating the image of God, but, but how much more are your brothers in Christ, elected of the Father, blood-bought by the Son, indwelled by the Holy Spirit? So I asked Ian, how would I make the distinction between false professors and believers in Christ? And here's what he went on to say that I thought was helpful. My short answer is, I just don't know. That's helpful, right? My longer answer is, by their fruits you will know them. If someone, he goes on to say, if someone does not live a Christ-loving, commandment-keeping, gospel-embracing life, I cannot call them brothers no matter how evangelical their language I walk through all that to drive you to the central concern about the condition of your own heart. Are you eager for biblical unity with other believers? Are you fighting to maintain it in your own body? Or are you quick to gossip about others, quick to tear them down, quick to assume the worst, quick to diminish our unity in Christ? The Bible takes quite seriously the sin of diminishing the unity of the body in Christ. Um, Go read 1 Corinthians 11 if you're not aware of that. Do you see the people in the aisle across from you as your people? Are they your people? Or do you quickly dismiss them over some minor disagreement or some negative sentiment you have toward them? See, it's important to our prayer life as a church that we see each other as our people. Those are my people. Those are my friends. Not because I feel a particular way about them all the time, but because we're in Christ together. It's important to our prayer lives together that there be unity, isn't it? Second aspect of their prayer life. So we see they're unified. Second, we see confidence in the Lord. They have a, a confidence in the Lord. Look at verse 24 again. As they lift their voice, their voice together to God and said this, Sovereign Lord, that's in the Greek word for despot. Wait, we think about that as entirely negative. This is the idea of absolute sovereignty. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, in other words, they want to stop as they've been persecuted. As they've been persecuted, they want to come back and begin with God is king. He's sovereign. He controls all things. And we know that he is the one who created everything. He's our sovereign creator. Then they go on and say, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Here, incidentally, we want to pick up on two things. One, not only is he the sovereign God who created everything, he's the sovereign God who revealed himself in Holy Scripture. He revealed himself in Holy Scripture. That's why even though David wrote Psalm 2, here the believers attribute Psalm 2 to the Holy Spirit. He's the one who ultimately wrote Psalm 2. And then they quote from Psalm 2, 
from God who's given them revelation, and they say, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. Quoting Psalm 2, they're coming back to this great messianic psalm, one of the psalms that is often quoted in the New Testament, Psalm 2, and they're coming back to Psalm 2 and saying, listen, you told us as we sang this song, as David wrote this song by the Holy Spirit, that this was not just about David's life as king, but that this was actually written after David's life was king, as king was over, if you will, sung after that, written by David, but sung after that by the church, they continued to sing this. Why? Not because they were only reflecting on David's life as king, but because they were looking forward to their belief that this would be fulfilled in the Messiah. They, this was a messianic psalm for them. And they're saying, we know that the Gentiles will rage, the peoples will plot in vain, the kings of the earth will set against themselves against the rulers Against, sorry, the rulers will set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. We know that. Psalm 2 told us that. And that's what we're seeing right now. You hear that? You're opposing us just like Psalm 2 told us you would. Now, I want you to catch that because they're going to link Psalm 2 to Jesus. And I want to make you follow the logic here. Verse 27. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, where they are, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed with the Holy Spirit, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Here's the Jewish king, and if you will, the, the Roman governor, along with the Gentiles and, catch this, the peoples of Israel. In other words, he's taken Psalm 2, where it says, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain, and he's applied it to Israelites. That would have been a stunner, a complete stunner. Psalm 2 is not talking about us. Psalm 2 is talking about the peoples who oppose God's people. And what they're saying is the people who killed Jesus are the opposition that are listed in Psalm 2. And notice what they did to do, verse 28, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Notice that they returned from being persecuted and report it to the church. And what's the response in prayer of the church? How do they respond? Do they respond, oh Lord, protect us and keep us safe. We're frightened and disoriented and, and not sure at all why this is happening. That isn't their prayer, is it? My guess is if I basically got arrested, thrown in jail overnight, questioned, told to be silent or, silent or else I'd be beaten within the inch of my life and potentially killed, I, I probably wouldn't, I'm just going to confess to you, I probably wouldn't gather a prayer meeting at which I would expect to hear the first thing out of your mouth, Sovereign Lord, you planned all this. You're in control of all of it. We'd probably be like, pray, keep us safe. Protect us. That's not what they pray. What do they pray? They actually break out in praise. Isn't that interesting? Come back from being arrested, told beside. They break out in praise. They praise God for being their sovereign creator, for being the revealer of, of truth. The fact that this was coming, he told us it was coming is what they're saying. 
He told us it was coming in Christ as they opposed him. And then because we're in him, it was also coming for us as his people. He told us. He's the governor of all things. He governed all of it. There wasn't one thing that he wasn't in control of. God is even sovereign over the events surrounding the death of Jesus. I I want you to stop and think about that. They do not see the single most wicked sin in the history of man as outside of God's sovereign control. This is the single most wicked sin in the history of man, killing the Christ. They do not see that sin as outside of God's control. And if it is not outside of God's control, then what is? Nothing. Nothing. They trust he's on the throne. So the question is, do we trust that? When all around us is falling apart, which it is, it is. If you're too young to know that, just wait, you'll know. It's coming. Do we praise him? Do we say, Sovereign Lord, you created everything. You've revealed yourself. You've revealed your plan in Christ. You're governing every detail. We trust you. You're on the throne. Will you say that the day after the presidential elections, regardless of the outcome? Will you pray that when you hear yet another unfavorable decision from the courts that somehow infringes upon your Christian liberty? I, I want to I press that a bit further. The church understands this whole scene as a fulfillment of what Jesus promised. Not only what was promised for Jesus, but what Jesus promised was coming for them as well, as his people. They understand this is really about opposition to him. They understand it's all happening because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and because they're his people. In other words, they understand that this opposition is because they're united to Jesus by faith. I want you to hear that. The world is opposing them because of Christ in them. The opposition is not really about them. It's really opposition to Jesus. Do you understand that, Christians? The unbelieving world isn't so much opposed to you. I mean, unless you're a jerk. That's a different thing. But that's something you can go to God about. But they're not so much opposed to you as they're opposed to the Jesus whom you worship and the claims he makes. Claims he makes. And, And I know it's popular in Christian circles to talk about being winsome. We need to be winsome. You know, if we would just, if you would have just presented that in a, in a more helpful way, if you just, if you just would have nuanced it better and, and just said it just so and massaged it just right, then, then I, I, it would have been good. We would have accepted it. I, I challenge the truth of that kind of notion. I challenge it. I, one man in our church, um, who, who I won't mention now, but by name, but one man in our church is probably the best presenter of truth in a winsome way that I know. He, he nuances every single thing he says, and he comes in with as soft a landing as he can when he's going to tell you the truth. And I feel like when he's telling you the truth, he's practically giving you a back massage and whispering sweet nothings in your ear, and you know, like as he's telling you the truth. And he comes in, and, and yet people still get offended by him because he tells the truth. And then they get offended by me because I don't do all the massaging and, 
And they, if you just said it different, and I think, you offend, you're offended by him, and he said it about as well as it could be said, so I'm not going to worry about doing all that jazz, right? No, that's not true. But <laughs> you, you understand the point. It's the truth people oppose. It's Jesus they oppose. And it's a sham for them to claim it's just how you said it. Look at John chapter 15. John chapter 15 and verse 18. Verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Notice that, but we're not its own. We're not the world's people. You guys hear that language? They're not our own. We're not their own. The world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Hear that? Here's Jesus speaking to the apostles saying the world's going to oppose you because you're mine. And I want you to understand that while this is Jesus speaking to the apostles, this brings direct application, if you will, over to the church. When you belong to Jesus Christ and you speak his word, the world will oppose you because you're not theirs. You're his because they oppose him. But notice in this context when he says the world will oppose him, he makes this promise to them, which is fascinating and ties into what I'm going to get with our next two parts here. Notice what he says in, in verse 26 of chapter 15. But when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, interestingly, can be translated in uh, this word Holy Spirit in John 14, is translated in the King James as the Comforter in the King James and we think of the comforter as someone who like, you know, we think of it as like a blanket. Oh, the comforter makes me feel nice. And, right? That's not what the King James English had to, was about. That, that's coming from the Latin cum forte with strength. That the Holy Spirit's coming with strength. Here, the whole, when the helper comes, the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will do what? Bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. See, you're mine. You don't belong to the world. You're not their own. You're my own. The world will oppose you because they oppose me. But I will send the Holy Spirit who will witness about me. And you will also be my witnesses when he comes. In the midst of being in opposition, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. He'll witness to me. And so will you witness to me by his power. That's what he's saying. And this ties beautifully to what we see in their request and in God's answer. The next two points are going to be their prayer request and then God's answer to their prayer request. And what you see is their request is boldness to witness. And God's answer to their prayer request is the provision of the Holy Spirit to witness. You hear that? You're going to be opposed. I'll send my spirit to be my witness and you'll be my witness. They're being opposed. They have unity because they're his, because they're with one another. 
and they're recognizing who the sovereign Lord is, who's created everything, who's revealed all this, who's governing all of it, and they immediately go to prayer requests, and the first thing they say is, what? Give us boldness to witness. And what's God's answer? He fills them with the Holy Spirit. So let's look at those two points. The requests they make of the Lord, their prayer requests, if you will, is our third point. So if our first one was unity in the Lord, and the second one was the confidence they had in the Lord because of who he is, this third one is really the requests that they make of the Lord. Look at verse, um, sorry, chapter 4. Go there, if you will, and look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. You're going to see three requests. Here's the first one. Look upon their threats. Here's the second one. Grant and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Here's the third. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Here are their three requests. Look upon their threats. In other words, pay attention to them and do what you will with them. They don't actually make any requests with regard to what they want done to the opposition. They just say, Lord, consider this. Look on what they're doing to us. Do what you will is what they're saying with, with them. And then they say, but here's what we want. Grant us boldness to proclaim your word so that they'll be saved. And, and stretch out your hand to heal. Stretch it out to heal, to do signs and wonders. Why? Perform the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Why? So that you will authenticate our ministry. So that they will begin to see the inbreaking of resurrection life, even now as people are healed. Pointing forward to what's co to come in the resurrection. So that they will know that Jesus is on the throne, is Lord, and is at work. Look upon their threats. Give us boldness to speak about Jesus and do work among us. Empower us by the Spirit so that they will know Jesus is in fact among us by his Spirit. That he in fact is Lord. What's interesting about these requests is that it bears similarity to Hezekiah's prayer. If you guys are familiar with Hezekiah, Sennacherib was opposed to the Jews, was a leader opposed to the Jews, and Hezekiah prays with regard to him, and that prayer is, is recorded in a few places. It's recorded in the book of Kings, it's report, recorded in the book of Chronicles, and it's recorded in Isaiah 37. And I just want to look quickly at Isaiah 37. You don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah 37, 14, I want you to hear this. Hezekiah received a letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Now listen to his prayer. I want you to hear it and the similarity to their prayer and the difference. Listen to this. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. You hear that? You're the sovereign Lord of all the kingdoms. You've made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Consider, look at the threats of the opposition. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands. In other words, the nations have opposed us and have cast their gods in the fire, for they were no gods but the work of men's hands, 
wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kings of the earth may know that you alone are Lord, are the Lord. Notice what's interesting in the pattern of the prayer, and scholars point this out, is that they address him as the sovereign Lord. They address him as the creator of all things. They recognize that opposition is against God's people, like, he was, like opposition was against the Jews, and opposition is against them as now God's people. And they then pray, here's the difference, they then pray for God to intervene and destroy this false nation and rescue them from his hands. And the distinction here is what? They don't pray for the removal of their enemies as the early church, do they? They come back and they say, Lord, take down the, the Sanhedrin. Take out the Roman armies. Difference here. They come back and what do they ask for? Boldness to speak the word of God in the face of persecution. That's what they come back and ask for. They actually want the gospel to spread even to their enemies. Lord, you consider what you want to do with those threatening us, but give us boldness to preach the word, to make Christ known, and authenticate your messengers, and give people a taste of the resurrection life through the healing of people. Do this work. In other words, Lord, give us opportunities to witness. Embolden our witness. Empower that gospel witness so that many would be saved. And here's the question, do you pray that way? Do we pray that way? It's, it's not easy to preach the gospel. You understand that, right? It's not easy, and I, by preaching the gospel, I don't just mean up here in the pulpit. I mean to sit at coffee with your friend across them who you know is not a believer and to talk about casual things and to hear them say something that you recognize the bankruptcy and foolishness of their worldview and think to yourself and you feel it in your heart, I should speak to them right now about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I should tell them about their hope. You ever been there? But you're afraid. You're afraid. And, and, and notice their request, give us boldness to preach the gospel. Give us boldness. They aren't asking for boldness. I want you to hear this. They aren't asking for boldness because boldness comes easily for them. This is boldness given by the Holy Spirit. And, and I, I want you to understand this. This boldness is not a personality trait. Oh, well, Chad's really bold and I'm not very bold. The boldness here is not a personality trait, and it is also not a practiced virtue. It isn't like they just practiced boldness so much that they were finally bold. They'd been bold at this point two times in their life that we're aware of. Pentecost, and then when they're in front of the Sanhedrin in Acts 3, those are the two times they've been bold. Prior to that, what was Peter doing? Was he bold? You friends with this guy, Jesus? I don't know him. So where did Peter's boldness come from? It wasn't his personality trait. It wasn't a practice virtue. It was a gift of the Holy Spirit. And what is this boldness? <clears throat> Alan Thompson writes this. Boldness, a New Testament scholar writes, boldness is a freedom to proclaim the truth of God's saving purposes in the Lord Jesus along with the accompanying warnings and promises, even in context of opposition, threats of personal harm, persecution, or derision. And I love this part. I want you to hear this. It, boldness is the willingness 
to be clear in the face of fear. Boldness is the willingness to be clear in the face of fear. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. More than once the apostles asked for boldness to proclaim the gospel. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Keep your hand in Acts 4, Ephesians 6, and verse 19. You don't have to turn there, but if you do, I, you should look with me. Otherwise, just sit and listen. Verse, verse 19, as Paul asked the church to pray for him, he asked them, listen to this, pray, he's telling them to pray, make supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given me to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. What does Paul know? I am not going to have the boldness to proclaim the gospel in truth in the face of opposition, in the face of fear, as I ought to, unless you are praying for the Holy Spirit to give me that gift of boldness. Again, in Colossians chapter 4, just to demonstrate the kind of clarity of this, Paul asking for prayer. In verse 2 of Colossians chapter 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. Why? That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. Now listen, verse 4, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. This is something we ought to ask for, boldness to witness. Boldness to be clear in the face of fear about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you ask for that? Lord, let me speak your word with boldness. The apostles did, and not only the apostles, the whole early church here is praying in one accord to be clear in the face of opposition. And we see that clarity come in Acts chapter 8 when they're dispersed and they go out preaching in clear clarity in the face of opposition. We need to ask him for boldness. As you're sitting with a friend wanting to tell them the gospel, ask the Lord for spirit-empowered boldness. Ask him to help you be clear in the face of fear. Ask him to speak as you ought to speak. We ought to be asking for that, church. It's a gift. It isn't a personality trait. So if you don't have it, guess what? Nobody else in here does either. It isn't a practiced moral virtue. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. All you need to do is constantly ask constantly in prayer. Lord, give me boldness to be clear about the gospel in any context I'm in. Give me opportunities to share the gospel with people. And when the opportunity arises, let me not cower in fear, but give me boldness to speak clearly as I ought to speak, even if it means it will cause derision in my friends or family. People I respect will think lower of me, less of me. Let's look at the final fourth aspect of prayer the answers they get from the Lord. So they have unity in the Lord. They have confidence in the Lord. They make these three prayer requests that are tied together, and then they receive their answer. Chapter 4, look at verse 31. Acts 4, 
and verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. In other words, they get this sign, this visible physical sign that the Lord's Spirit is present. We see that as well in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice that phrase. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and what happened? They continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. God made His presence known. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word with boldness. Jesus is with them by the Spirit, emboldening them to preach the Word and then empowering the word as they preach it. You guys hear that? Notice that phrase, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice a couple of things about it because I, am, I fear that when people hear filled with the Holy Spirit, they think of some kind of, some kind of crazy mumbo-jumbo that happens to people when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? I, I want you to understand what it is. Notice the phrase, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. First, it's passive. God's Spirit fills them. It isn't active. They don't fill themselves with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills them. Second, it's occasional. They're already spirit-indwelt believers, aren't they? Now he fills them in a particular way. So what does it mean to be filled by the Holy Spirit? And if they're already indwelt by the Spirit, what does it mean that they're passively, if you will, in the midst of prayer for boldness to speak the word? They're passively filled by the Holy Spirit. I think it means, and I'm going to prove this in much shorter fashion than I'd like to. I had a grand biblical theology of this laid out for you. It's incredible, but I will not get to it today. No, I don't think it's that good, but anyway, it's helpful. Here's what I think it means. I think it means the Holy Spirit empowers you to speak the word of God with clarity, to proclaim Christ to unbelievers and to your fellow believers. I think that's what it means, simply. I think when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have the word of God dwelling in your hearts and flowing from your lips. The Spirit causes a praise within your heart that pours out as an effective witness to Christ in the church and in the world. Look, look at Luke chapter 1. Look at Luke chapter 1. Keep your hand in Acts 4. But look at Luke 1. I, I want you to see how Luke uses this phrase, filled with the Spirit, over and over again. Chapter 1, speaking about the, the birth of John the Baptist, verse 15, this prophecy Speaking of John the Baptist, look at verse 15, Luke 1, 15. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And what does that mean he'll do? And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the power, spirit and power of Elijah. To, in other words, for him is the Messiah. In the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and the disobedient uh, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In other words, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, and what's his role going to be? To testify to the coming Christ. Look at chapter 1 and verse 41. And when Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, that's John the Baptist, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she did what? Exclaim with a loud cry, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? In other words, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and she begins to testify to Christ, doesn't she? The fruit of Mary's womb. 
Look at chapter 1 and verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. What's that mean? He's proclaiming the word, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And we can go on. What's he getting at? Here's John the Baptist's father testifying to the Messiah, filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and what will he do? Testify to the Messiah. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. What does she do? Testify to the Messiah. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. What does he do? Testify to the Messiah. You see the same thing with Simeon in chapter 2. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he testifies, what? To the Messiah. You see it in Acts chapter 2. As the church is filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter says, we're prophesying, and what are we speaking about? Jesus. And now he fulfills the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 4, as Peter is confronted, it says before he answered the Sanhedrin that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he goes on and does what? Testifies to Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, filled with the Holy Spirit, they talk about Jesus. In Acts chapter 13, verses 9 through 12, filled with the Holy Spirit, talk about Jesus. In Acts chapter 13, verse 52 through 14, 3, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they talk about Jesus. Every time they're filled with the Holy Spirit, what are they doing? They're going to the Word of God and talking about Jesus. So is it any mystery then, look at Ephesians 5, when Paul tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 5, if you look there, and verse 18 And do not get drunk with wine. This is talking about wine as the agent, the thing that makes you drunk. Do not get drunk by wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And what's the outcome of that? Notice the participle, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord, that's Jesus, with with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It's to be filled with the Word of God as it testifies to Jesus the Messiah and then to boldly open your mouth about Him in the context of the church and in the context of the world. Paul in Colossians 3 picks this up again, and instead of saying be filled with the Holy Spirit, the same phraseology here, he just says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. In this scene in Acts 4, the church is asking to speak the word of Christ with boldness, with clarity in the face of opposition. The Lord is answering by filling them with the Holy Spirit, and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. So the question is, are you asking the Lord to grant you the ability to speak the word of Christ with boldness? Church, we're supposed to pray for this. It isn't something that comes naturally. It's something that comes supernaturally. We must pray this way. The Holy Spirit is the effectual minister of the gospel as he emboldens our witness and empowers our witness to Christ. May the Lord grant us to be a people, a church who has unity in Christ, a church who's filled with people who look across the aisle and say, 
those are my people. Those are my friends. That's true not because of the way I presently necessarily feel about them, but because they're in Christ. May the Lord grant us to be a people, a church who has great confidence in him, knowing he is our creator, the sovereign Lord, in control of every detail, that there isn't a single random renegade molecule in the universe that that's all under his control. May the Lord grant us to be a people, a church who regularly pleads with the Lord for boldness to speak the word of Christ with unbelievers. And may he greatly empower us to speak the truth with clarity in the face of fear. And may the Lord grant us to be a people, a church not only indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but filled with the Spirit and bold and powerful witness to Christ so that many are saved. May he add daily to our number those who are being saved, and may the word of God continue to grow. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your Spirit would be at work among us, that we would be a people who who are unified, who are confident in who our sovereign Lord is, who desire more than anything to be gifted by your Spirit to speak the word with boldness, to testify to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And may you grant us that. Will you fill this body of believers with your Spirit day after day, Will you grant this body of believers boldness to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, with clarity in the face of opposition, in the face of our own fears? And may your son be greatly known among us, among our friends and family and coworker and neighbors in our city and around the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.